Shut up, sit down, I'll listen, wait Relax, my dudes, it's not too late To join in with these awesome fans Marble at theirs Chips and cozy picks and means and means and best go with the hydrants Well, they're just waiting Welcome back to the Geekening Podcast. I am Rohil, your guest host for this episode. And you should always say my name just like that, Rohil. You gotta give it the oomph it deserves. For those of you who are tapping in for the first time and haven't seen some of my previous work with All Ages of Geek, I've worked as a development lead at a very popular TV and film festival here in New York and out in LA. I've worked with almost everyone in the biz from AMC Networks to Disney TV Animation, Dell, Nvidia, you name it, to create branded content and opportunities that platform the next generation of iconic showrunners. I also currently work as a narrative designer. I worked on Infinite Jonathan's, a card game available at Barnes and Noble. And of course, I'm a writer here at All Ages of Geek. And this podcast is a very special episode. It is a return, a catch up with the previous guest, very much a part of the All Ages of Geek fam. If you follow indie games, if you follow the indie game scene, then you have a lot of love for this team. We have Charles, Mark, and Connor from the innovative games platform, Vox Pop Games. They are bringing a whole new set of opportunities for games funding, marketing, collaboration, and distribution. We're going to chat about their latest release, Outer Terror, their development process. We're going to talk Vox Pop's new partnerships. And I really, I want you guys to tap in here because I know a lot of you are aspiring devs, aspiring creators. And these guys at Vox Pop are some of the most authentic people I have met in this industry, right? They stand on business. They are committed to elevating indie devs. They don't just talk the talk. They are out there actively bringing opportunities. And Charles, especially in this episode, drops a lot of game, a lot of interesting perspectives. Round two, fight. Thank you so much for making the time. Gentlemen, let's kick things off with some introductions. Uh, Charles. Uh, well, I am, of course, uh, the founder and CEO of Vox Pop Games. My name is Charles Yu. I spent quite a few years as an independent game designer myself. I started Vox Pop to really try and alleviate a big problem that I noticed. Once you start working on a more professional level, and especially if you're dealing with a small studio, dealing with contractors and the like, you're really beyond the point where you can just give everybody a, a revenue share and expect that they're going to come on and uh, help you build the project, right? You run into trust issues with contractors. Do I believe that you're actually going to pay me what you're worth, what I'm you know, doing for you? And as the studio, you would run into a lot of accounting problems as well, right? So let's say you actually do get a bunch of people to agree to help work on your project for a revenue split. Am I going to be stuck writing a check once a month, every month to every single person who owns like a piece of my game. The idea behind Vox Pop is to automate this whole process. We help contractors find projects 
they can put a little work into, get their revenue share, and when the game reaches market, they'll automatically get their revenue split as dividends. Or they can sell their shares early if they need that money now to other people who will hold on to that revenue and wait for the game to come to market. As the dev, you gain a system that allows you to help manage what you've promised all these people and that will automatically pay them so that you don't have to worry about the accounting side of stuff yourself. And you can find the talent you need when you need it. So we really want to support independent and small developers by linking them together with other people who are also looking for projects on their downtime. Mm -hmm. And Mark? Uh, Co-founder and chief operating officer. My name is Mark Rodriguez. I've been in the interactive entertainment industry for a little under 18 years now. I've worked with indies and middle of the road, triple I devs and triple A studios such as Rockstar and Capcom. And I worked on the streaming side to bring out product for HBO and Major League Baseball and Disney Plus. So I have um, a huge affinity to all things cool content. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hi, I'm Connor. I'm the chef of the team. <laughs> I, I cook up everything uh, that you that you see in here. I guess not everything, but a lot of it. I just graduated Bradley last year with a degree in game design, and um, I was interning for Vox Pop at school. Just kind of worked out. I got picked up, so that's pretty sick. Coming out of school, it's been a really cool project to work on, and something that I've really enjoyed so far. So, hello. Perfect, thank you. So we got the VoxPop team here. VoxPop's library now, over 300 games available, all kinds of genres. The title that we are focusing on today is VoxPop's first VoxPop-funded game, Salt and Pixels, Out of Terror. Let's go. Super intense kind of a, a bullet hell game that perfectly captures that grindhouse, that B-horror feel, very self-aware, but also very loving towards, you know, the genres that it borrows from. Yeah. Um, so can you chat a bit about Outer Terror, the inception, how a project like this is brought to life through Vox Pop Games? And Vox Pop's Indie Fund, which was way more, I guess, in its infancy, the, the previous time that we uh, got a link up. Oh yeah, uh, Outer Terror is the first game we've really fully funded. There are games that we have assisted with a small amount of funding, but they were basically done. I believe when we last spoke, we were basically just in the planning phases of setting up this fund. We hadn't actually gotten anything yet. The way it worked with uh, Outer Tear is we got a proposal that we really liked. We spent some time negotiating a contract, deciding a budget. And from there, we basically just had check-ins every week in addition to you know, setting these milestones and funding things for OT. Uh, Mark can talk a little bit more about the experience of working with Salt and Pixel on the dev side. We also did put in a lot of our own time and effort into building things for the game as well. We ran QA for the game. Uh, we helped design the UI. I, in fact, made a lot of assets for the UI myself. We helped get the art done for the game. We found and managed contracts for the game where necessary, right? So for stuff like voice acting, video editing, and the 
like. And we handled like PR and marketing for the game as well. So we were involved every step in the way, trying to take care of the boring stuff so the devs can focus on the actual design of the game. I've been a huge fan of Brandon Rodriguez at Salt and Pixel. He's a solo dev out of Virginia. I had been following his work for years. We had worked previously on a couple of titles that we just distributed on the platform, mm -hmm. uh, like Crush or They All Die Screaming on the Vox File platform. <laughs> Should have mentioned this uh, earlier. Out of Terror is actually a sequel to yeah. a game. Miracle Success. <laughs> sequel when it was yeah. pitched it was a sequel yes 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 it's a spiritual successor to a game that was actually already on the vox pop platform yeah. called the gray death gray the protagonist is also the protagonist of the gray death yeah yeah when i was doing more of a deep dive on salt and pixel i was seeing some of the work in progress stuff on gray death so initially i thought oh i wonder if this is kind of the early phases the, the early drafts of what would become outer terror when we first started uh, putting this out, Brandon Salt and Pixel uh, was working on a title called Citra Atra in 2022. He pitched the game. He's like, hey, I really have some cool ideas. He put together a short GDD or a pitch doc that was reminiscent of like three core ideations. A bullet hell that's stylized like Crimson Land, but also has like elements from different ARPGs, right? So you're walking around this, these different maps, these different areas, uncovering them. When we did every step of the way is inject flavors of every kind of retro horror trope in gaming and in media. It's sort of like a transmedia property where it has a comic book aesthetic, it has a B-movie aesthetic, it has a horror genre aesthetic. So, so to clarify, uh, one thing that Mark is getting at here is that the the game's story is, of course, segregated into chapters, and each chapter is framed like its own golden age um, horror comic. They can all have the same overarching villain, this Cthulhu-like entity, but each actual conflict can be drastically different from one another. What you were saying about the Grey Death, one of the reasons why we were so uh, ready to work with Salt and Pixels because we were already familiar with the developer and we had already worked with him before on this previous title. I think when you're setting up a new program like the Vox Pop Fund, you know, this is your first time trying to manage a project like this, you've never funded a game before, it's really helpful if you can work with people that you already trust. I know, Rohil, you gotta give us now what you thought about it. You have some hands on, no fluff, but like, what did you think of the experience. Yeah, it's a fun ride. I had a good time with it. This is an aesthetic you guys know that I typically gravitate towards. I don't like to use the word addictive because of the negative connotations, but I will say this game does have an interesting relationship with my dopamine receptors. The anthology approach to this game is so cool. Such a large roster of characters, especially for an indie title. It's an impressive cast. Which of the characters uh, are each of your favorites? And is there any type of character that pulls from that B-horror, from that pulp aesthetic that you would like to see in the Outer Terror universe? Who's your favorite character, bro? Oh, oh, wait. Yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot about my favorite character somehow. I mean, it's got to be Bobby. Bobby is my guy. I voiced him. You know, I've gotten some feedback on my, on my Southern accent, but I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> I also wrote the dialogue for him. And I had to look up like Southern slang. So I don't know. I'm pretty proud of my work on that guy. 
So we, we so Rohit, when uh, Charles went into the background on the voiceovers, a lot of the voiceovers were done in-house and from friends of the dev. Mm -hmm. So you'll see in the credits listing, when you see the front end of the game, you'll see all the credits for Box Pop and Foam Pixel and our amazing artist, Joe Roman out of Mexico. His, his tag is Chito. He's worked on a bunch of other projects for us as well. So the main character art, I was serving up to, to Chito and with Brandon Salt and Pixel's co-production, we crafted all of these, these specific characters to look like um, a Street Fighter selection menu. My favorite character is, is uh, Anna, uh, the Inuit uh, uh, character of the game. We also wanted to feature as many diverse dynamics as possible. 50-50 female to male characters, mm. different racial backgrounds, you have different uh, occupations. My main character would be, the character that I played was Grey, and uh, my favorite character is Anna. Charles? Probably Katya. Not enough clown girl representation. <laughs> In terms of character concepts to be added, I have to say that I think there's certainly no shortage of um, concepts that we could go through. As you can see from these characters, there are a lot of pop culture uh, inspirations for these characters. One thing that I think would be very fun would be a character who their normal abilities are very much nerfed compared to the other characters. Maybe mm -hmm. they have very low health. Maybe they have limited inventory slots for the amount of items they can carry because they're a kid, but they're being protected by like a T-1000 style, you know, mm. puppet character. So that is an idea that I had that ultimately couldn't really be implemented just because of uh, time constraints. Who's your Who's your guy uh, or gal or whomever, Rohil, your character? Listen, I, you know, I it's a vanilla answer, but I got to go with my man Gray. Pretty classic, you know, protagonist vibe with him. But I, I do, I love the design on Samad. A character that I would like to see in the Outer Terror universe is I feel like there's always that Groot-like friendly monster to that adds a wholesome element into the cost i'd love to see arcana maybe some guy who's like dual wielding pistols or something mm. or has some sort of like uh lifesteal or like maybe that would be really broken but i don't know I i'm just thinking some like really edgy guy black suit you know top hat neo from the matrix cosplayer <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's got a fedora and a katana as well yeah he's just really over the top because uh, that's like what the game is all about. It's just like super, super over the top, which is what I like about it. So let's get into it more, right? The grindhouse aesthetic, the B-movie aesthetic, uh, pulp aesthetic. This is all nostalgic. It's hyper-specific uh, as a developer. What is your approach to incorporating tropes that exist in a way that honors them, but also being able to expand on them, being able to present something that is fresh, that is uniquely outer terror. How do you reference things that exist while also maintaining your own iconic feel? I think borrowing from elements of nostalgia is part of what gives the game its unique feel. I think that when you strip a game down to just its own, just its mechanics, none of its theming, none of its writing, none of its art, most games start to look pretty similar to other games that are already out there. Borrowing imagery from popular, I'm trying to come up with the word, but like creative commons, but 
for the real world. <laughs> when you borrow from these common ideas, you are using imagery that people already recognize. And so that allows you to build off of it to go in ways that they don't necessarily expect. It also means that you don't have to spend a whole lot of time explaining uh, motifs or characters to the audience because they already basically get it. So you can jump rapidly between these different stories. The reason why we can go from fighting zombies to fighting toasters and refrigerators <laughs> that have been taken over by an evil AI or whatever, right, is because we are referencing some of these popular tropes. That's the real advantage to borrowing from some of these nostalgic elements. It means you don't have to need spend as much time on exposition, and that gives you more time for creativity and variety. We can just be like, no, all our toasters are rebelling. Start shooting the toasters. The 2D shooter, audience knows how that works. This like looting mechanic stuff, audience knows how that works. And because you don't need to spend a whole lot of time explaining these basic common tropes to the audience, it gives you more room to play with how you change up the formula and uh, how you present more variety to the player. So for Connor in particular, who uh, wrote dialogue, working in a world that already has these beloved established tropes, how did that feel from the perspective of writing content? Did you feel maybe some pressure living up to certain elements from these genres that have uh, such a diehard fan base and people who hold such intense opinions about how this sort of stuff should play out? Or did was it a freeing writing experience? It was hard. At the same time, I feel like there's a decent amount of freedom in it. I kind of felt like because the game was mentioned earlier a bit over the top like you can get away with some things that might be like a little cheesy but like it fits mm -hmm. if that makes sense and especially you know going off the things that were kind of the inspirations for the game i kind of felt like that actually fit into the kind of things i would write anyway so I actually really enjoyed it. You know, I'm like a 2000s baby. So like Mark kept sending me things and he was like, you need to look at this. You need to look at this. You need to look at this. And like every time I, I looked at it, I was like, oh, okay. Like I, I see what we're going for now. So I thought it was really fun to just like play around with, see what worked, see what didn't work. Connor had the distinct advantage where his father owns a comic shop. So all of the deep cuts that we're trying to get, like Connor, just go to your dad's store and like raid the coffers and figure something out, man. We need like some, we need something spectacular. A lot of the stuff that we were doing early on Roll Hill was mm -hmm. experiment, experiment right, on, right. on what we can do. But like my generation, I feel like the old young guy, I'm 41, gonna be gonna be 41 in August. And all of the stuff that I was alluding to, Connor had never even like seen. I was like, but your dad owns a comic shop. Like just go to his shop and get this book. And he's like, it's not that simple. So for us, I think the the freedom that comes with having the support of, you know, Charles with Vox Pop and uh, the developer that we have being so fluid and able to bend and, and, and ebb and flow with the creative process, I think really lent a lot to the experimentation. It was it was invigorating for me because I only had this freedom at Capcom. What's a favorite piece of dialogue from this project that, that sticks with you and, and has become an, an in-house go-to reference uh, among the team? The coolest piece of dialogue that came out of this game is actually our don't promo that Charles voiced. I 
start interrupting this cult chant? Don't. If you are thinking about buying the latest model of toaster, don't. If you are thinking about going out of your way to find a lost pet, don't. If you are thinking about dining with aliens, don't. If you are thinking about entering the frozen tomb of an ancient vampire, don't. And that don't promo is a deep cut to Edgar Wright's don't promo in the Grindhouse movie. So we built a don't trailer as an homage to don't. And Charles, I was like, Charles, look at this video. I need you to say these lines. <laughs> and Charles hit it out the park. That really, I mean, that got, that got featured on IGN. That got Gamer Sky's attention. A lot of the promo stuff that we really built the, the environment around and the aesthetic around. Um, I just wanted to give Charles that sort of kudos, like, thank you, man, there we for, go. for that. So that was that. Uh, in, in case it wasn't clear, the reason why Mark is saying the don't trailer is just because the word don't gets used a whole bunch of times in the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> Another fun one here is there is this, there's a bunny boss that shows up. It is uh, grotesque. In the spirit of this, this creature in your game, what were your biggest horror creature influences, formative creatures growing up. I know exactly <laughs> how to answer this wow, question. Why don't you answer off? Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> my favorite kinds of creatures. So Fluffle Stillskin, I have to give credit to Brandon, is his core so ideation. We wanted to have like a cool side mission where this guy doesn't know what the hell he's doing and he wants to find his bunny and you got to find him. And of course it turns into this like, amalgamation of flesh pieces like the thing right the, all that goes the homage to the thing my favorite horror things growing up uh the movie the gate that has these tiny minion creatures you actually get as a power up in the game they're from the movie the gate with steven dorf but the most horrific thing that would actually give me vivid nightmares is the intro to tales from the crypt when you're going into the dark house and you're going down the staircase and all of a sudden this giant old puppet cadaver mm -hmm. pops and i literally had to look away from the screen when i was like nine years old watching this on hbo at like midnight on saturdays that kind of like in your face pop-up visceral non-cg analog horror really is life mike's favorite style of uh scare shout outs to all uh george romero early like night of the living dead that spawned all of these other things and huge huge shout out to the tar man from return of the living dead who is actually uh, realized in the gray death as those soldier fungal soldiers that come against uh -huh. that's one of the most horrific things in all of you know transmedia <laughs> it's like <laughs> disgusting and it's the beginning of the movie and um yeah the guy just look up tar man scenes on youtube if and you'll you'll have nightmares for centuries so you caught me like a bit of a deer in the headlights with this question if i'm going to be honest there's okay. so much to, <laughs> to potentially talk about that i'm freezing up here i suppose the best way i could put it is there is a trope that i love um and that is the idea of the enemy being some unstoppable titan. And all the all the heroes can do is try and slow him down until they can 
either find a way in the end or, or get away in the end, right? There's a lot of examples of this. I feel like Jason is probably the most famous horror example. He's practically unstoppable in the context of the story. So I'm trying to think of other examples. Um, Terminator 2 does this really, really well. In, in terms of video games, Slenderman, you know, we, we do have other examples of unkillable enemies. Right, that sort of force the player forward. Uh, this is a, a, a mission structure that we do in the fifth chapter, right, Antarctica, where the player has to periodically deal with this. Oh, it was inspired by the thing. Yeah. Uh, the player has to deal with this uh, uh, immortal vampire queen that will just show up and chase them around. You can't kill her. You can slow her down by burning gasoline, but you need mm -hmm. that gasoline to get away. So it's like an inventory management thing. I thought that was a, that's a really cool structure. It adds a lot of inherent tension because you don't know when she's going to show up. And when she does, you have to burn resources to survive, but you also need those resources later. That uh, uh, creates a very interesting shift gameplay-wise from just mowing everything down like mm -hmm. you normally do. A lot of the horror stuff I like are, are like slow birds. One of my favorite horror movies is like The Witch Like made me very uncomfortable <laughs> the entire time and nothing happens in that movie the entire time you're just uncomfortable the feeling it's giving you makes you so uneasy yeah. and i think that's such an interesting experience but in terms of like I, I guess like body gore stuff the first thing that comes to mind a lot of the dark souls bosses are like just grafted yeah. like bodies onto each other God godric from elden ring yeah a, a lot of that stuff i think is like super cool Without a terror, you can choose whether you want uh, an auto-aim or an auto-fire or to do that manually. More traditionally is maybe not the right word. But my question for the team is, what is everyone's take on players being able to choose their level of interaction? And do you see this becoming more of a trend? Is this the way forward in making games a truly accessible, more inclusive medium that more people can enjoy? Can I can I tackle this one first, guys? Yeah, go for it. Um, yes, uh, I think it is, and I think it will be. The best games are accessible to everyone, but give players who really want to dive deep into it the tools to do so um and there's so many examples of this in games in the past look at a game like super smash brothers melee party game one of the most mechanically intensive games probably ever made it was made for you and your friends to beat each other up on a friday night and people are playing in tournaments for thousands of dollars a game like mario kart wii a game that like people have really fond memories playing growing up that lets you literally choose if you want to be able to drift or not and that game also has a huge competitive scene uh, interestingly enough and you can even look at something like elden ring that game basically has an easy mode like spirit summons which is fine i think that's great and it's a huge commercial success because they made a game that's pretty inaccessible uh accessible when people talk about accessibility in video games they're usually talking about casual features bringing in new players into more mechanically complex games but i think it could go the other way too you purposefully introduce higher skill floor uh, mechanics to bring in core gamers into a game they might have otherwise ignored. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. 
Uh, I feel like a lot of core gamers, people who identify as core gamers anyway, don't understand the purpose of auto attack in games that have them. Games can be designed with auto attack in mind so that the player can focus more on movement. And I can give you a perfect example of this, and it's the last story on Wii. It's an RPG that was designed by Hironobu Sakaguchi, the guy who created uh, Final Fantasy. That game has an auto attack feature in it, which is enabled by default. And me, when I played it the first time, as a teen, I was like, oh, auto attack, that's for casuals. I'm turning on manual attack, baby. <laughs> I'm gonna go in and spend the next 60 hours mashing one button <laughs> as I move forward. And then like 10 hours in, I realized, you know what? This is dumb, right? <laughs> because the, the actual focus of the game is supposed to be on positioning this party. I'm controlling like six dudes at the same time. There's a cover system in place. Manual attack is actually holding me back a lot. People don't realize that these elements of the design, the reason designers put them in doesn't have to be just accessibility. Sometimes it can be about highlighting other mechanics, putting the focus elsewhere other than the actual mechanical execution of the attacks. I, 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 love, I love that we built a hybrid game mm -hmm. that gives accessibility to all and allows for multiple gameplay styles. Agreed. And I agree that you did a good job achieving that with this project as well. Let's tap into some other Vox Pop releases. What do we have coming out soon? Coming out pretty soon is Tranquil Garden Adventures Edition. That's one of our partners. Yep. Shout out to our friends over at Gloss Robot Games. Yeah, they, you know them very well. They're from New York. They're coming out with their sort of stylized version of an AI RPG style game that you could choose your own adventure and their pathing and their systems for that game is different every single time. We partnered with them early because just like we did with Salt and Pixel, we were familiar with their work. They're part of the New York independent dev scene. We also came out with Weaponeer not that long ago, a hack and slash platformer. Great example of accessibility. It was one of the yep. most accessible games known to man. The main focus that I, want, I wanted to talk about in terms of our, our publishing arm is the diverse grouping of developers. You know, solo crews to cooperative devs to whatever we can muster and whoever wants to work within our middleware tool sets and really utilize the way that we are able to do marketing specifically for them and able to do PR for them in, in different ways and in, in new and exciting ways. I think that that's what really separates us as a platform. It's super exciting because last time we spoke, Rohil, this was just like an its nascent phase mm. of just us having the storefront. And now that we have this sort of you know, publishing library, uh, we're able to do a lot more and have a lot more freedom. And the devs have a lot more time to focus on their products and focus on their games. Do you have any other case studies, any moments that you wanted to point to with creators, devs finding collaboration through your platform? You know, any stories of projects that found artists, that found marketing? We have plenty of examples of that. In fact, uh, Reverb Communications, the company that uh, helped work on PR for uh, Outer Terror. They even previously did PR for games like Ark Survival Evolved and Guitar Hero. They came on with a 10% revenue share uh, in Outer Terror. We do have examples like that. People came on to work uh, on OT for a revenue split. Prior to OT, the games that are on the platform, the vast majority of them, they were already done, basically. They use the profit share for influencers. So streamers, YouTubers, getting people to recommend the game to mm -hmm. take a share of the game. When it comes to finding uh, developers to work on these games, these Vox Pub Fund games are our 
test cases, essentially. We are right. building that network right now, and uh, we are helping devs negotiate these partnerships. Did you want to get into the recent partnership with Gamer Sky? I know they're helping launch out of Terra, out in East and Southeast Asia. What is that relationship? What is the goal? What are the goals there? Ah, Gamer Sky is another revenue split. They are doing the Chinese language localization for uh, Outer Terror. They're giving us the translation and poor Connor over here has to put them in manually. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Uh, no, uh, so no, no problem. That's where the, the distribution and development platform comes into play with all of us playing over. Connor's uh, been- so Game, Gamer Sky is, of course, a very large Chinese publication. Uh, what was it? Their Chinese name is Yongming uh, uh, Tiankong or something like that. Yeah. Um, they're going to help publicize OT in China, uh, get it press, get it advertised, and they're going to take Outer Terror to the Sinosphere. It's a really awesome partnership. Uh, I can't say enough about the work that they have been doing, but the, I can't say enough about the work that Connor has been doing on our side in terms of the production value and the injections and all this other stuff with Construct. I know it could be a pain in the ass, but what we're doing with GamerSky is also a new kind of frontier with uh, how we're presenting this product to the world. We've gotten the game reviewed by Screen Rant and by uh, featured in Game Informer and got a Metacritic of 73, which is insane to see its own wiki page. We got, for, yeah, we, we got a Wikipedia page. Yeah, that, 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 I, I don't know. That, which I think I'm quite proud of. Uh, we're actually also in process of talking to another company out of Spain about bringing uh, Outer Terror to the EU and to the consoles. Uh, I can't quite say who yet. We're still negotiating, mm -hmm. still under NDA. Being able to secure all these partnerships uh, for OT on a revenue split basis does prove the viability of the business model. Um, although, of course, we are still moving forward with additional projects, and we're going to just keep bringing games to market. One of the things that is very meaningful to me about Vox Pop is that they're a Brooklyn-based operation and you speak about your involvement within making games in new york specifically we're trying to work as closely as possible with uh, the city with the new york mayor's office of media entertainment the mom um, we are on the uh, games industry council in new york city we were at the tribeca games festival uh, just recently. So um, we're, we're doing everything we can to support the local scene um, and to build ourselves up here. Yeah, hopefully you get to see Rohill on the train, some Outer Terror ads on the, on the you know, buses and trains. That's the goal here, to get some bread publicity and marketing for Outer Terror, just to expand the reach of it. Having a poster in New York or having like a subway display, that's the goal. So yeah. working with the MOM partnership has been amazing. Anna, the commissioner, and Aliyah, uh, the assistant uh, director, have been very, very supportive of our venture with Vox Pop and with what we're doing with Outer Terror and our publishing arm, uh, but the, the whole storefront as a whole and the distribution network and uh, development platform that we have is really, really coming around and it's really shaping up to be something quite formidable. So I'm very, very proud of that. Yeah, I'm always sh shouting from the rooftops, check out, you know, all ages of geek and the geekening and your work, Roll Hill. So yeah. Check out Outer Terror. That's a fantastic game. Tranquil Garden from Glass Robots, Weaponier. All of those will be linked on this page where you are listening to us right now. Thank you guys for making the time. Thank you guys for just making a career in games more accessible 
to independent developers. What you guys do is important work. All right. Thank you so much, team. Thank you. Thank you. Be safe. Thank you. Bye. 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 Too late to join in with these awesome fans and marble at them. Some chips and toasty picks and meat and meat and milk and with a hyphen squad that just won't quite ignore all the Hey!